Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Scanlon, from the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. This podcast is produced in partnership with the National Academy of Engineering. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts. Hi, everybody. I'm pleased to invite Dr. Paulo Dodrico to the podcast today. And Paulo is going to talk to us about water and energy linkages and global trade concerns. Paulo is a professor of natural resources at the University of California at Berkeley, and he received his PhD from the University of Padua in Italy. He has published several books, including Global Deforestation and Dryland Eco-Hydrology. Paulo is a fellow of AGU and has received many prestigious awards, including the Sustainability Science Award from Ecological Society of America. Thank you so much, Paulo, for agreeing to be on the podcast. I really appreciate this. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. And could you give us a brief description of your work and a little bit to prepare for the discussion? Yeah, sure. I'm a hydrologist, so I was trained mostly as a civil engineer in the beginning with a focus on hydrology and the natural system. In the last few decades, we looked at the interactions between water and the biota and the role of water in determining ecosystem functions in a whole field that is now called eco-hydrology. And more recently, I started looking at the role of water in human societies, more at water resources and the questions related to sustainability, water sustainability, the way they intersect with the food and energy security. Thanks, Paolo. And I think we'll be focusing mostly on the latter part of your work in this discussion. And I think in one of your studies, you indicated that although in the past we've put a lot of emphasis on natural systems, that most systems are not natural anymore. And so we need to look at the human impacts and understand the linkages there between water, food and energy. So, Paolo, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the increased energy prices globally and the potential impact on food security with grain trade supply chain issues from with the Ukraine war, Russia-Ukraine war, and also with countries stopping exports like India and some Southeast Asian countries. And... Also, the impact of energy prices on fertilizer production, because some plants in Europe have had to greatly reduce their production, and so that also impacts food production. So how do you think this is going to impact the trade of food and food security globally? And this is not the first time we've had a food crisis, but, and then what did we learn from previous food crises around 2008, 2010, 11, and earlier? Yeah, first of all, the, what we learned is that the food system is strongly globalized through international trade. And so we estimated that about 25% in terms of food calories are accessed through international trade on average, which means that when there is a shock in one part of the world, particularly in a breadbasket like Ukraine or the entire area of the Black Sea, there are going to be some impacts that are going to affect not only that region, but far regions of the world. So the easiest thing for us to do at this point is to look at what we learned from recent cases or recent food crisis. In 2007-2011, there was another important food crisis. It was caused by the increasing demand for food and energy products, and particularly also the demand for biofuels in a period with some crop failures in some parts of the world. And so that led to an escalation in food prices 
There was uh, at the time uh, to uh, some countries uh, reduce their exports substantially to control the food prices domestically. And this led some other countries in other parts of the world in a condition of panic. So in the case of the 2007-2011 food crisis, Ukraine reduced its wheat exports by 80%. And also Australia reduced its exports. And the wheat prices were having a shock or a spike of 150% increase. As a result of that, well, many parts of the world were affected by this global increase in prices, but particularly affected were the regions of the Middle East and all the way even to other African countries like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and in the, on the other side, it arrived all the way to Pakistan. And overall, there was a, an increase in food prices. Of course, this is a particularly serious in case of developing countries where most big part of the income of a household is spent in the purchase of food. Then there was another important food crisis in 2010-2011. In that case, Russia reduced its exports of wheat. Belarus reduced the exports of rapeseeds. And then Argentina reduced the exports of soybeans. So overall, there was a, a slowdown of the international food market or market of agricultural products. There is some, um, several studies tend to support the idea that uh, this contributed, that was one of the contributing factors to the Arab Spring. And so clearly the, what we are seeing today is unfortunately some of the trade from the exports from Ukraine has resumed. It's a, a situation not very different. It affects the same area of the world. And so it's a, a very critical supplier of food globally. That's very interesting, uh, Paolo. And I think when I was looking at the data, it seemed like a natural gas prices spiked uh, in those years, like 2008 and uh, 2011. And then that impacted and tripled the fertilizer prices during those times. So that would also be a contributory factor. And also, I think you mentioned in some of your studies, the effective dietary changes with increasing middle-income countries. Uh, they're shifting to more water-intensive, energy-intensive diets. Maybe you can describe that a little bit. Yeah, I think this is an important factor. So, so there is a crisis in this particular situation, a crisis of supply. At the same time, there is a very high demand and the demand for agricultural products has been increasing. And not only because of population increase, but also because of affluence often it comes with an increasing consumption of animal products, which require much more water, much more land for their production on a per calorie basis than land food. Altogether, this led to an escalation in the demand for agricultural products. And also, we are at a point where in the previous decades after World War II, there was this strong enthusiasm for the Green Revolution because it allowed an unprecedented increase in the production of food. But now, clearly, other factors that are not only nitrogen supply and soil fertilization, other factors which are simply as simple as land and water become limiting in the, our ability to sustain an increase in agricultural production. And this combined with an escalating demand by human societies brings us to this very first global food crisis after decades of excessive supply. Right. So that's extremely interesting. So, I mean, food trade uh, sort of helps to resolve spatial disconnects between supply and demand. But then you can, if you're an importing country, you can also be vulnerable if the exporting country reduces their exports during critical times. 
Can you explain how the globalization of food trade has evolved over time? I know it's been going on for decades and it's been increasing, particularly in the last couple of decades. Maybe you can describe that a little bit, Paolo. Yeah, I think this is an interesting aspect of the way in which the full global food system has been changing in the last few decades. Of course, it has, as you are indicating, there are some pros because at this point it's possible to sustain the demand in regions of the world where the supply and the production is limited by even by natural factors. At the same time, there are some vulnerabilities because there is dependence on a production that is not controlled domestically but is abroad and is accessed through international trade. The food trade system has been changing over the decades. Right after World War II, there was a, a strong control of the United States uh, that are a big major producer of grain. This grain production was partly sustained by subsidies domestically in a way that the U.S. government was supporting and sustaining a production rate that exceeded the domestic demand. At this point, the U.S. had to place these products in the international market right after World War II was been through the Marshall Plan. And that included some provisions for the European countries to purchase a discounted rate in wheat from the United States. At some point, then the European countries started to protect their domestic production and the U.S. started to divert this surplus to other parts of the world, in mostly in the developing world, which, of course, had the impact of displacing local systems of production or limiting their ability to develop because of the fact that there was this competition by a relatively cheap uh, grain from the United States uh, subsidized by the U.S. government. And this led to a condition in which uh, we, if we look now at the distribution of the so-called yield gaps, the gap between actual and potential yields, we see that some regions of Africa and Asia still have a relatively big gap because, again, the lack of development of agriculture, partly also inhibited by this competition with exports from the U.S. And so, I thought, and so yeah. yeah, these developing countries then can compete with the subsidized food that's coming from the developed countries. So that's really a little bit unfair and then uh, reduces their ability to develop their own domestic supplies, as you suggested. Yeah, and makes them more vulnerable to situations like those we were talking about, in which there is an export ban, and then at this point uh, they don't have enough domestic supply to meet their demand. And so they are more vulnerable than they would have been in the absence of this competition with subsidized products from the United States. The U.S. played a very central role in this globalization of food at the beginning. At some point, even Russia started importing for some period in the early 70s grains from the United States because of a crisis of production in Russia, which had the impact of creating again an escalation in food prices. And then we kept going over time. And at some point, the other big change we can see is that when China from a self-sufficient country started importing soybeans and staple crops, possibly from South America. At that point, this is partly related to what we were talking about before the increase in demand for animal products. And so much of this soybean product imports is used as a feed for the livestock industry in China. At this point, if we look at the global redistribution of agricultural products through trade, the U.S. is not central. It's still an important one. It's number two in terms of exporter, but South America is a major exporter and is also much more integrated in the global market of agricultural products. 
And so this uh, overall, at this point, uh, we have 25% of the food commodities that are accessed through international trade, which is not a trivial amount, clearly. Right. I think some of the South American countries are a bit unusual in that uh, Argentina does not provide any subsidies for its agricultural production and actually taxes them. So, so they're competing at a different level. And, and then the increase in trade from South America corresponds to the agricultural expansion in that region and then deforestation and impacts on the environment from the agricultural expansion that I think corresponded to soybeans and herbicides and pesticides and all of these things making large-scale production feasible. Yeah, the whole region of the Cerrado, for example, in Brazil, has been uh, undergoing major land use changes uh, from grazing land to agricultural land. A lot of loss of these savannas, which also have an impact on uh, habitat and also on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So some of the impacts of this trade are affecting the producing country to the benefit of the importing country. It was interesting. I was looking yesterday at where Brazil gets a lot of its fertilizers and a lot of it in the past has been from Russia and Germany and stuff. So it'd be interesting to see how they're impacted by current issues with the Russian-Ukraine war and, and energy prices in Europe. You also, I think, have studied quite a bit uh, the NAFTA agreement, North American Free Trade Agreement, and its impact on linkages between the U.S. and Mexico and and what effects that has, trade there has on water issues and and land and stuff. Yeah, we've been looking at the production of vegetables and berries, the so-called healthy diet in the United States, to what extent this uh, requires resources that are in Mexico, including land and water resources. So one thing we noticed is that since the mid-90s, there has been an escalation in the production of berries in Mexico and in the imports to the United States. With no exaggeration, most of the imports of these berries, U.S. imports are from Mexico, more than 90%. And so this happens in regions of Mexico where there are limited water resources, where water resources are depleted, in particular the groundwater. And so there are environmental impacts of trade and some externalities that have remained for a long time understudied, and most consumers are not aware of the environmental impact of their consumption habits and where these impacts happen. So, Paolo, just when you tell us not to eat meat and to eat more veggies and stuff, but then we have to consider where the vegetables are coming from. <laughs> so it's a quite a complicated system and it can lead to, it's difficult for a consumer to figure out what's good, what's bad or, or whatever, because you have to consider the source and, and the climatic conditions at the source and whether it's irrigated or not irrigated and those sorts of issues. So this leads into this issue that when you trade food, then you're also trading water. So this virtual water concept and water footprint. Can you explain that to to listeners and and what it entails? Yeah. In fact, when we were looking at this impact, uh, and one of the impacts is on water resources, uh, and uh, you were alluding to the fact that uh, some of these products use uh, irrigation water, deplete water resources, etc. So... The notion of water footprint has been introduced by Arjen Oxtra to define the water cost of a given commodity. And his focus has been on agricultural commodities because they, most of the water consumption by human societies is in agriculture. 
And so it's possible to calculate how much water is needed to produce a kilogram of wheat, a kilogram of meat, and so on. What we find is that water consumption for meat production is orders of magnitude big, greater than the water consumption for plant food. So this is a, a good metric to have an idea of the hydrological impacts of our consumption habits. But as you were indicating, we don't know what are the environmental impacts associated with this consumption of water. Because if a commodity is produced in a place where there is plenty of water, without depleting surface or groundwater, the environmental impacts are relatively small. At least in terms of water consumption, there are other impacts associated with soil erosion, pollution from fertilizers and pesticides. And so it would be important to have a metric of water footprint that accounts for the type of water, if it's irrigation water or rainwater, and where this water is taken from, and to what extent this happens at expenses of environmental flows or groundwater stocks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the water footprint concept has been hugely beneficial in people understanding how much water it took to grow that food. And it's not included in the food right now, but it was evaporated when the crops were growing. And then it came the source of the water, whether it's surface water or groundwater, and the conditions at the source are very important also. But the water footprint concept doesn't oftentimes doesn't extend to that level. But I think it's advancing now to consider the source. If you're producing the food, for example, in, in the US, we produce maybe 60-70% of our vegetables from California and then export them to the rest of the country. And the Central Valley in California is essentially a desert. So there's an awful lot of irrigation water used to produce those food items for the domestic market. And that, of course, leads to overexploitation of groundwater resources. So, I mean, it was interesting to me, there was a World Wildlife report recently that said, could we move the Central Valley to the Mississippi Basin? Could we move the food production in the Central Valley? And I mean, it's a lot more complicated than just thinking about growing the plants in the in the Mississippi Basin, but you also have a lot of socioeconomic issues, labor force, migrant labor force, and all of the things that have uh, evolved over time in the Central Valley to support that agricultural production. Exactly. And also the type of production and the type of yeah, agricultural products is produced in one region is not necessarily suitable for another one. But uh, for sure, they, they we can talk now about the the notion of virtual water, which is very strongly related to the notion of uh, water footprint. As you noticed, the, the water is not contained in the apple or in the, the kilogram of, of meat, but it's the water that has been used in a consumption process that has been evaporated. But by trading one commodity from one place to another, so by uh, shipping almonds from California to another part of the United States or of the world, virtually we are transporting that water. In this notion of virtual water, which was developed by Tony Allen, has been a very powerful framework to look at the globalization of water. How the globalization of food through trade is associated with trades of virtual water. This water is not physically present in the commodity, but virtually is as if it were transported with a commodity from one place to another. And so this means that some parts of the world depend on virtual water imports. And the typical example Alan used was, again, the Middle East, because there are so many people in the Middle East with very limited water resources, that water would not be sufficient to feed that part of the world. And the reason why uh, this is possible is because of the import of grain from other parts of the world. 
According to Alan, this is an import of virtual water. He quantified that virtual water, which is greater than the flow of real water down the Nile River. So this is a very effective way to give us an idea of the magnitude of this uh, phenomenon. We said 25% of the food on average is traded. Uh, similarly, 25% of the water used for uh, food production is virtually traded from one part of the world to another. So through this virtual water trade, we can really look at where the water resources we use as consumers come from and where the hydrological impacts of consumption habits are perceived and are happening. Right. So I think that's very important. This is a virtual water which was used to, to produce the food. And it's not actually imported the food at this point, but it, it was used up or evaporated when we grew the food. And so I think then because... 70% of global water consumption or 90% of global water withdrawal is for irrigated agriculture. Then there's a big emphasis on making agriculture more uh, sustainable. So people have talked about the concepts of more crop per drop or water efficient uh, irrigation systems, flood uh, versus drip systems and stuff like that. But I think there's also a paradox associated with that, and maybe you can explain that a little bit, Paolo. Yeah, it's called the irrigation paradox. And it's basically if a farmer maximizes the consumption of water, and so for a certain amount of water that is applied through irrigation, most of it is uh, uh, transpired or evaporates uh, into the atmosphere, it means that very little of that water drains down to the aquifer or can uh, contribute to surface runoff. As a result, when farmers switch from a surface irrigation based on canals to a drip irrigation, which has a much higher efficiency, this efficiency has the cost of reducing the flows of water down to the groundwater or to the surface water bodies. And so as a result, while at the farmer scale, this efficiency leads to an improvement in water use, this means that downstream other users will be left without or with less water than before. That's Yeah, that's extremely interesting. And I think there was a paper by Alan McDonald and his co-authors in Nature recently about canal irrigation in northwest India, greatly recharging and building up groundwater supplies in that region over decades from the early 1900s. And it's only recently where they've switched to groundwater irrigation that the last couple of decades they've started to deplete the aquifers. But I mean, they built it up over decades so, and I know talking to some folks in Australia, like Quentin Grafton, that precision agriculture in the Murray-Darling Basin, they spent five or six billion dollars, but they didn't consider that in lining irrigation canals or these sorts of things, that then they were, that that water infiltration from irrigation canals was not a true loss. And then when they didn't take it into account, then they saw the impacts later during drought. So... We have to consider the interconnectedness of surface water and groundwater and, and what is the true loss in the full water balance in the basin, not just at the farm field. Totally, because if water leaves uh, the land masses, either is evaporation and transpiration or runoff. If we increase and enhance the evapotranspiration, then we have a loss uh, in uh, surface and groundwater runoff. So then... Uh, we really don't gain anything. We just consume upstream. And then you know. I think with these increasing efficiency in irrigation, many farmers expanded their irrigated areas. And so then they ended up consuming more water through evapotranspiration. And so what's the net benefit to the system at all? These 
highly efficient irrigation systems, just Pulido Velasquez and others uh, show, show that early on in, in the Southwest US. So very important to consider all of these different aspects. So we talk a lot about food production, irrigation, import, export, and global trade. And so I think uh, considering the energy prices now, fertilizer shortages and all of that, I think a lot of countries are concerned about food security. And in the past, uh, they've also had these issues. So what are some of the ways you have written in detail about land grabs in countries purchasing land in other countries uh, to increase their food security and also possibly water security? Maybe you can just define what land grabbing is and, and then what the implications are for the, of these processes. Sure. The land grabs are acquisitions of land and usually large tracts of agricultural land and that happened in conditions of unbalanced power relations without involving the current land users, or without a democratic process, without even a symmetry in information between those who lose control over the land and those who gain the control over the land. And in the most extreme case could be also done with forced eviction environments. And so in these conditions, the land is taken away often from uh, marginalized groups uh, in the developing world. Typically, the investors uh, are uh, agribusiness corporations, uh, could be government-owned companies, or could be also investment funds. And uh, uh, there's been an increase in the, what is called sometimes the land rush since the food crisis of 2007-2008 because of the fact that some countries are not self-sufficient in terms of food production, wanted to have a more direct control over the agricultural land to secure access to food. A typical narrative that is being used is that in some parts of the developing world, the yield gaps are big, and so the land is not used at its maximum potential. So because of lack of investment in technology, because the innovation of the Green Revolution has not been adopted, and so because of that, there is the need to for some agribusiness corporation to make the investment the local farmers have been unable to make. And so invoking of the logic of food security, even international organizations have been sometimes supporting this type of investments. And the theory is that because of the fact that there are investments in some regions of the developing world through these land acquisitions, according to the so-called trickle-down approach, everybody will benefit. The reality has been that often the farmers lose access to, of course, to the land. We replace the subsistence farming with large-scale commercial agriculture. And so production in this acquired land is for the export market and local communities don't have access through these commodities through the market. The other problem is that in many cases, the land has been left idle or not cultivated and was being purchased just as an option for the future. So without even bringing the type of investments that were expected to happen, or it took a long time for this land to be developed. The interesting part of the story is that the investors are often interested in the land, not because they don't have a land domestically, but because of lack of water in their own home country. And so this land grab is often associated with a water grab, with a, a, an attempt to appropriate water resources for agriculture. Yeah, I think some of your work, you were describing land grabs along the Nile River, uh, Sudan and other regions. And, and so I guess that they're very interested in the water resources in those regions. 
also. Definitely. In fact, we have shown in some of our study that they acquire the land that usually has a, a preferential access to water, either in terms of distance from surface water bodies or a distance from underlying groundwater. It also, the investors also tend to target countries that are not expected to be strongly affected by climate change. The whole world will be affected by climate change, but in terms of water availability for crop production, these regions would not be strongly affected. And so there is clearly an attempt also to invest in land and in order to invest in water resources. So I think one of your recent studies where you're looking at new dams that were constructed over the past couple of decades and you were looking at land use change adjacent to those and irrigation and stuff, I think you found that most of the land was appropriated by a large agribusiness and, and the smallholder farmers were squeezed out. And, and then it seems like in those countries, maybe they're producing luxury items, I mean, like flowers in Kenya or things like that for export market. So it doesn't seem to enhance the food security in those developing countries. It doesn't seem to help. The way water grabs can happen, it can be either through the acquisition of land or to the development of an infrastructure on a river or can be a well in the aquifer to extract water and have a control on the access to those water resources. And the development of new dams for the construction of new dams for irrigation in Africa has been followed by the emergence of new irrigated areas in the surroundings of these dams that are mostly large-scale farms, not small-scale subsistence farms. So this means that uh, those who benefit uh, from this large-scale infrastructure usually or often are the agribusinesses, not uh, the rural communities. And uh, as you're indicating, some of the uh, production is for more luxury products. So it can be flowers, can be uh, can be sugar cane, not necessarily staple crops. So overall, by doing this, uh, the uh, traditional users of the same water resources uh, lose access to that water. There are several examples. It's been very well studied the case of the Omo River in Ethiopia, where uh, the communities, the agro-pastoral communities, downstream from uh, the Gibe 3 Dam, lost access to water resources. It is a lake there, the Turkana Lake, that as a result of the agricultural use of water upstream has been shrinking with loss of fisheries on which the local communities were depending. And so if this process, this large agribusiness doesn't uh, improve food security, how do you think uh, food security could be improved in, in Africa? Do you think you can help the smallholder farmers improve food production and try to close the yield gap with fertilization, limited irrigation and small scale processes and decentralized store, water stores, things like that? Do you think that has potential to improve food security in those countries? Well, clearly, if there are relatively big uh, yield gaps, the closure of the, those gaps will really uh, help with the, an increase in production. There have been uh, two approaches. Uh, one approach would have been the green revolution or technology-based approach, so bringing the fertilizers, irrigation. And again, this is possible up, only up to a certain point. If we look at water resources, there is a limit to where the irrigated agriculture can be expanded because of lack of uh, water resources locally. And the other approaches instead are based on low technology, more labor intensive, but based on polyculture, still some irrigation, and the use of more labor to sustain higher production, the use of organic fertilizers, non-industrial fertilizers, 
and local instead of the big dams, uh, small-scale detention ponds for, for irrigation. And again, uh, this technology is required also by uh, approaches that try to plant the right crop in the right place, so avoiding uh, water-demanding crops in regions that are water-limited, and improving the crop suitability, also the right crop on the right soil, in a way that it's possible to increase the production without requiring these big investments in technology that are not easily accessible by smallholders. And I guess uh, maybe crop rotations and stuff could help with the nitrogen balance and and then trying to improve the soil health and these sorts of things uh, could go a long ways to improving crop yields. Definitely. In fact, uh, those more traditional methods, it's a whole field that is called agroecology tends to focus more on these, let's say, less industrialized methods that sustain soil microbial diversity and crop rotation and also approaches that try to farm the land in a way that there are less evaporative losses from the soil in a way that uh, water is conserved to, to sustain crop production. Like, uh, like no tillage? Uh... Like no tillage, uh, cover crops, these are the methods to, to reduce soil evaporation. Right. And also, I think, soil erosion, because many of these regions are subjected to floods and droughts, so it's a sequence. And so anything that can protect the soil cover and from erosion and would be go a long ways to improving soil health and, and crop yields. Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's a very important to sustain, uh, to have some sort of sheltering of the soil surface from the action of wind and water in a way that the soil is not lost and that the nutrient-rich part of the soil is sustained. So we've been talking a lot about human-centric subjects like everything for humans and stuff, but we've also got to consider the, the environment. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of, of the needs of the environmental flows and other things. Has much of your work focused on those aspects also, Paolo? Yeah, we've been looking in the past at aspects related to land use, uh, loss of forest cover, the extent to which this is uh, affecting the land, the processes of erosion, habitat, uh, to what extent this is affecting also the hydrological processes, uh, the intensification of uh, or increased exposure to floods, the loss of uh, environmental flows, as you were suggesting. So all these aspects that are important, also to what extent uh, the loss of forest cover or other types of woody cover can be irreversible to what extent this is leading to a permanent loss of habitat, which is also a very important from the point of view of the way in which very important for the human health as we are now in this global pandemic. We always tend to look at the health of humans separate from the health of the environment, the health of animals. Deforestation has been shown and forest fragmentation have been shown to be um, important drivers uh, of the uh, transmission of pathogens from wildlife to humans. And so we studied the case of Ebola in Africa, also coronavirus. This is work I'm doing my, with the colleagues, uh, Maria Cristina Rulli from Milan. We are looking at the, how this uh, impact on the habitat has an impact also on the spillover and the transfer of pathogens uh, from wildlife to humans. And I think, uh, you know, it also has a big impact on water quality. I mean, 
New York City preserves the forests covering their watershed uh, so that it uh, results in high quality water. But for example, Sao Paulo, they did, it was a lot of deforestation and then that results in sediment yield and with erosion and impacts treatment systems and, and those sorts of things. And then the nutrient loading that comes with agricultural expansion. So there are a lot of trade-offs to consider to optimize land management, and people are very concerned with uh, trying to improve water quality upstream of major urban settings and those sorts of things. Yeah, there is. A, in fact, the case of Brazil, for example, is a very interesting one because uh, there is a, the attempt now to restore the Atlantic forest exactly to improve that to bring back some of this environmental quality and this is a major reforestation effort at the same time other parts of the world we talk about planting trees in areas that were not even forested initially or at least in recent times and this can have other problems related to the water resources then depletion or reduced availability of water resources downstream so sometimes we deal with a system that is some sort of a short blanket so if we look at the problem from a larger scale we realize that on the one hand, looking just at the food system, which is a, is a strong environmental impact, there is a minimum amount of environmental impact also in, or impact also on water resources that is needed to feed the world. At the same time, there is also the concern that we might shift or we might reach some tipping points if we encroach too much in the, into the space that should be left to nature. Yeah, and I think one aspect of nature that we should be is, is wetlands. They serve a huge role in, in water quality and quantity and, and flood mitigation and those sorts of things. I think many urban areas, they developed over the wetlands and then they're much more prone to flooding now. And maybe now they're considering restoring some of those and, and this green and gray technology combining those to, to try to improve uh, uh, water systems. Yeah, these are ways to go back to look at the, the function that the biota plays in the specific case uh, in controlling the hydrological processes. And instead of relying only on uh, great infrastructure, use, uh, go back to, uh, we can go back to some of these uh, functions and plant trees or use the natural environment to restore some of those environmental services that are very important for water resources, for environmental quality, control of pollution and flooding. Right. So we've talked about a lot of different things, and I guess it'd be nice to try to, and we talked about some solutions to, to different issues like smallholder farming and food security in Africa. It seems I often think about trying to resolve water issues in terms of a water budget. If we have the shortages, increase supply, reduce demand, store more water or transport it. And I think in terms of water and food, we oftentimes consider just increasing supplies of these things and don't focus so much on reducing demands or conserving or things like that. What are your thoughts about sort of the solutions that we can use to resolve spatio-temporal disconnects between supplies and demands? Of course, uh, I, I totally agree on the fact that we shouldn't focus only on increasing the production and the supply because there is a limit to that and probably we are reaching really the, the, that limit. And so it's time to look at the consumption, our consumption habits. If we look at food, how we consume food and to what extent we can switch to a food system that is less demanding and requires less natural resources, less water, less land, 
The first thing we can think of is the food waste and food loss, which according to some estimates accounts between 25 and 30% of the global food production. Of course, we will never be able to reduce it to zero, but we can limit that. This can go down to the uh, our individual behavior uh, in the way we buy and consume food at home, but uh, the whole system can also be restructured and reimagined in a way that uh, can uh, be more, uh, can reduce that waste. Or if any food is wasted, it can be reused to produce energy, to fertilize the soil or as feed for livestock, for example. So the other big one, uh, of course, is the consumption habits directly as uh, the type of food we want to eat. So we already talked about how meat and food and animal products are more demanding. Perhaps a diet that is less demanding for sure would allow us to reduce our, substantially reduce our pressure on the environment. And interestingly, while the food, the meat consumption has been increasing, the type of meat that is consuming is more sustainable. There is a shift more to poultry and pork and less beef. And the footprints, not only in terms of water, but also of greenhouse gas emissions, land use of that type of meat is much less. So that's already a good sign. And that could be also part of a conscious decision on consumers. Right. I think, you know, in the past, uh, I was doing a lecture tour maybe about 15 years ago, the Ports Out Rice lecture tour, and I was saying that most people should become vegetarians and stuff. But then some people would say, well, it takes about a gallon to grow an almond in California. So maybe it doesn't so water intensive. Maybe poultry production is not so water intensive. So we need to consider where the food is grown and the environmental conditions there also. And I think we're we're trying to track things back to the source and, and the environmental impacts. And that will help us understand what's critical. And I guess intensification versus extensification of agriculture. I mean, we have very technology-oriented areas, vertical farming or protected farming and things like that. Very energy-intensive, but uh, highly productive and maybe more of a circular economy where we recycle the water and the nutrients and things like that. But we've got to consider all of these things. And I think that's what's marvelous about your work is that uh, you cover the gamut. So you cover things from all sides so and consider the trade-offs because most of us just look at one aspect and then we just tout that but it's very important to consider greenhouse gases as you mentioned and add water and land and all of these things and energy as well right yes. so we can uh, there is a whole world there that uh, we requires to be improved in a way that uh, a new energy system that is not competing with a food system and is not demanding water resources in areas where they are not available. Well, I guess that gets to the biofuel question. People have used various terms, cars versus carnivores or food versus fuel and things like that. But that's mostly reflecting maybe first generation biofuels or maize or corn grown in the US and things like that. But Brazil has, I think, done a terrific job of their biofuel program and have a strong chemical industry related to it. And most of the sugarcane that's used for biofuel there is grown fairly sustainably, it seems like. Yeah, but at the same time, we did some back of the envelope calculations. If the biofuels requires too much water overall, so we will not be able to replace fossil fuels with biofuels. This is why we will need to look at renewable energies that are not based on fuels. And this could be solar, can be wind or something else. Hydrologically, there would not be enough water to solve the energy problem only with biofuels. 
as you are suggesting, also for the food in the case of energy, most likely it needs to be a combination of different methods, different solutions. It's going to be a mix of all of them. And so one aspect that I think you have written about a while back is, do we have much food storage to resolve temporal disconnects between supply and demand? Have those stockpiles of food have been decreasing? I've seen this in some of the food crisis that our stockpiles of food have been decreasing over time, so we can't turn to those in time of crisis. Is that correct? I think it's important to maintain food stocks and grain reserves. In fact, what helps us in situations like this one where there is a major crisis affecting a breadbasket, having access to reserves that can cover the supply for several months is really crucial. And so there have been different ways to measuring these global food reserves because there are also there's some disagreement in the data, the available data. But what is important is that they, uh, when you simulate even in a model food crisis, uh, having a food stock makes a big difference and allows to meet the demand despite the reduced supply from uh, some of these producing regions. I guess it's just like water storage. We have surface reservoirs, but also groundwater provides a large store of water as a buffer then during droughts and things like that. But I guess the biggest issue with energy is that we can store it or not effectively yet. So that really highlights the differences between these different things, water, food and energy. I really admire you, Paolo, for working with a large team of scientists and and collaborating with various people and talking to economists, decision makers, policy makers, and really sluicing through data sets. It's not easy to get data to address many of these topics, but you seem to do a great job of synthesizing the current situation and global issues. What's next on your agenda or what are you looking at these days? Well, first of all, I have to say that this work is always a work of a team and there is a lot to, uh, to learn from these collaborations uh, with uh, colleagues with different expertise. And so that's a part of the fun of working on this research. Right now, we are still working a lot on uh, this notion of water grabbing, looking at different pathways of water grabbing that are associated not only with acquisition on land, but other ways through which it's possible to gain control on over water. And uh, I'm also interested in looking at this interaction between uh, the human rights to food and water associated to the rights to food and the rights of nature, the way in which uh, we can uh, recognize some uh, the value of nature by itself, independently of uh, being instrumental to human action. We can uh, find a way to meet both rights and to what extent instead uh, these uh, two rights can be in competition between the two of them. And so there are interesting cases of uh, adjudication of these rights between nature and uh, humans. Well, that sounds fascinating. I really appreciate your talking with us today and, and sharing your insights on globalization of food trade and virtual water related to that, and then potential solutions to addressing some of these issues And I hope the current situation won't turn out to be so dire, but at the moment, it just doesn't look very good. And I think developed and high and middle-income countries would be able to address that, but the developing countries, I think, are the ones that may suffer uh, the most. So our guest today is Professor Paula Dutrico from the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>